Welcome back to Voices in Bioethics. I'm Jennifer Cohen, and it's my great pleasure to welcome Hiba Ilias to the podcast. Hiba Ilias is a third-year medical student at Lake Erie College of Medicine in Erie, Pennsylvania, and she's currently doing a rotation at Rochester Regional Health in upstate New York. She holds a BS in physiology and a BA in East Asian Studies from the University of Arizona. Thank you so much, Hiba, for speaking with me about your work. Thank you, Jennifer, for having me. Our pleasure. Let's start with your medical course of study. So you are studying to become a DO, a doctor of osteopathy. The way I think of medicine, it sort of breaks down into two branches, the allopathic and the osteopathic. Is that correct? And if it is, can you define both those terms and describe how they differ from one another and how they are similar? Yeah, so both courses of medicine, they are basically very similar. I would say in terms of curriculum, what the osteopathic curriculum really focuses on is the osteopathy, which really is the principle of seeing the body as a whole unit. So when we are talking about disease processes that, you know, an individual can get sick from, We don't look at it as just, you know, what's happening on a micro or cellular level. We look at, okay, this is how one part of the body is being affected and how it actually affects the rest of the body, including your mind and how that can eventually lead to other consequences and kind of related symptoms that may be more generalized than just associated with just one disease process. Right. So doctors of osteopathy are fully licensed physicians. That's correct? Yes, that's correct. So we can prescribe medications, we can see patients, we work in hospitals. We just have that kind of one additional training, which involves the hands-on osteopathic manipulation techniques, which our allopathic peers don't have that extra training. Okay. I want to unpack a lot of what you just brought up. So First, you mentioned that a feature of osteopathic medicine is that it endeavors to treat the whole person, the whole unit, as you said, versus just symptoms of disease. Can you flesh out how that plays out in clinical care? Sure. So often, I guess, like in a more general setting, if, you know, a patient comes into an urgent care and let's say they have like a cold So, you know, they have fever, chills, and for a cold, you know, we do prescribe some kind of medication. Usually colds are like a viral infection, so we don't really give antibiotics for that. But we can help give, like, if you are, like, having a sore throat, we can give you something for that. But, and, like, generally for your fatigue and for your fevers, we'll often prescribe medications for that. But... There are also things that we can do in the office instead of just prescribing medications to kind of give some immediate relief. So if you have like body aches and trouble breathing because you've been coughing up so much and just generally feeling ill, then we have some techniques that we can use on the body to kind of help. So most often what we are working with with the techniques that we do is on different layers. So what we kind of treat are muscles and fascia, and we kind of move and try to relieve tension in those areas in order for the body to kind of 
better perform. So in states of disease, kind of like your sympathetic system is kind of in overdrive. And so kind of placing our hands and putting pressure in certain areas that reaches the nerves and the fascia and the muscles that are kind of being triggered can help calm down that flare up. So it's kind of the same, I guess, idea as like when you kind of ice like a sore muscle or if you put like a hot pack in a very like irritated area, it's the same idea, but we kind of really like relieve the tension in those muscles. So interesting. Can you talk a little more specifically about what these manipulative techniques entail? Yeah. So for example, if I were to target, like if you have chest pain, you're not able to take a full breath. So we can kind of do some breathing exercises while I also kind of like, if you inhale, I'll I'll like kind of put my hands on like the sides of your chest, you'll inhale. And then as you exhale, I may put some pressure on your ribs and continue to do that with each inhale and exhalation and continue to put pressure while you exhale so that it kind of feels very tight while you breathe. And then when I suddenly release that inhalation and exhalation actually kind of stimulates lymphatic flow and also kind of allows your rib cage to kind of just like open up. So that is like one technique, especially when people are feeling ill, lymphatic flow techniques can really kind of help aid just like feeling better because any of the bad cells that are in your body are kind of taken up by the lymphatic system. So kind of improving the flow will allow all of the bad cells to kind of clear out faster. Hmm. So interesting. So let me ask about consent, which is such a big issue in bioethics. Mm -hmm. How do osteopaths address the issue of consent when it comes to touching patients? So always we've like, even just, you know, meeting a patient for the first time, I believe all physicians, you know, kind of learn the etiquette of how to approach a patient, introduce themselves, kind of like sit eye level with the patient instead of standing over them to allowed the patient and the physician to kind of interact on equal terms because being in the hospital and seeing a doctor and being sick, it's all scary and nobody likes it. So creating a comfortable setting is the first step for any physician when talking to a patient. But then especially when evaluating and touching the patient, doing an exam or even doing a treatment, our best practices include kind of asking permission, and also explaining what we're doing because the patient doesn't know. So as we are doing our treatment, we, and if usually we treat a patient on one of our, like the beds, so we will help them lay down, we'll support them, kind of instruct them which way we want them to turn. We kind of hold the side of the bed in case they feel like they may roll off. So all of that and just being close and being watchful and openly communicating to them that well, we're here and like we're going to touch here and we're, we're holding the side of the table so you don't fall. You can feel free to grab my arm if you're unstable. Just that open communication really first allows the patient to be comfortable in that setting. We'll also let them know that, you know, we're not going to do anything without letting them know. And that just establishes a greater trust in the patient-physician interaction. Yeah. 
Yeah, that seems to be a very different experience than many patients have in regular doctor's offices. In terms of decision-making by patients, so normally when someone goes to the doctor's office, it's for something extremely specific. The medical intervention offered is usually very specific just for that problem. The side effects to the medication are explained and the patient consents or doesn't consent. When you've got this whole body, whole system approach, how do you think that impacts a patient's ability to consent? So, I mean, like every treatment, it's an option for a patient. So in addition to whatever medications we may offer, we can also offer, hey, like we have this treatment that I think may benefit you. And we would explain the process and how that would kind of help them get better. And they have that option of, you know, like, yes, I'd like to try that or no, I don't think that would be helpful for me. So. I mean, it really depends. And I feel like even current osteopathic physicians, depending on what setting they're in, they may or may not offer those services because first, it takes time. Second, patients aren't very familiar. They're already not feeling well. So sometimes people are not willing to like spend the extra time in that unfamiliar setting. But, you know, some of the physicians who I have seen kind of practice in that way always explain thoroughly and try to make the patients understand that, you know, doing this manipulative technique or treatment can give you some immediate relief. And also we can prescribe kind of like home regimens so we can perform it on the patient and then teach the patient how to do similar techniques on themselves or on their family members to provide relief. Wow. Does osteopathy encompass chiropractic? No, I would say that chiropractors, I'm not too familiar, but they often use additional tools. They have like some like hammer guns and things that can kind of help assist do help assist with aligning the spine and stuff, but mostly the osteopaths, we don't use any extra tools. It's all like just our hands and placing the patient in certain positions and straightening them or turning them ourselves. And with the patient, it doesn't require like any additional tools. Mm. Are there misconceptions about osteopathic medicine that you've run into? Definitely. A lot of people don't really understand just the term, I think, kind of throws people off of like, oh, well, what is that? That must mean something different. If you don't have MD at the end of your name, that must mean that you're not a real doctor, quote unquote. So that's just one thing is just the unfamiliarity of what DO is. But in actual practice, when you're seeing a doctor, nobody really asks them if their MD or DO or where they got their degree from, you go to the hospital and you see a physician and they take care of you and then you leave. So in terms of that, I do think that just in general, that when someone does kind of initiate and say like, oh, I'm a DO or I'm an osteopathic physician, questions come up and like, oh, what does that mean? And when we explain manipulative techniques, they will say like, oh, so you're just giving me a massage or, you know, yeah, you must be just like a chiropractor. 
I mean, in essence, you know, what we may be doing may be very similar, but I think the training and the reason why we are offering that treatment are a little different. They're nuanced. How many years of training does it take to become a doctor of osteopathy? So after completing four years of an undergraduate education, you will have to complete four years of an osteopathic curriculum. And then afterwards, there actually newly, there has been a DOMD residency merger. So now MDs and DOs can all apply to all the same residencies. And so depending on what you want to specialize, you will then do your additional residency training, which can range from three to five years. And if you want to do any fellowships, that can be an additional couple of years. So it's like timeline wise, it's the same as an allopathic physician's timeline. Okay. Let's switch gears to some of your research interests. So you've done research studying the Ainu people of Japan. Who are they and how did you become involved with studying them? Sure. So the Ainu people are the Aboriginal people of northern Japan, mostly located on the island of Hokkaido, which is very close to the Russian peninsula up there. They are natives to Japan and I didn't know anything about them until I actually had the opportunity to study abroad in Japan. And I was doing this for my East Asian studies major with an emphasis in Japanese culture. So I was taking a lot of courses on just general culture, food, I was taking language classes. And it turns out that some of the cultural courses actually incorporated some topics on the Ainu people. I was very fascinated because as an American-born person going to Japan for the first time, I had never imagined that there was people that considered themselves other from the more traditional East Asian population. I mean, Japan is considered for the most part a homogenous kind of population. I had never thought about it. I had never seen it in mass media. So I was very surprised. And there were actually opportunities for us at the Hokkaido University campus where I studied abroad to actually meet some Ainu people and kind of see some of their culture and read about them. And one of my professors was someone who was very involved in Ainu research as well. So kind of getting that exposure while I was there was what really interested me in kind of pursuing that further when I came back to the U.S. Sounds like an incredible experience. So can you tell us about the type of research that was done into the Ainu peoples, why that type of research was problematic, and the reasons around discrimination against Ainu people? Sure. So... I would like to say a lot of anthropological research, it was heavily for political reasons. So when for any kind of, I guess, current nation, you know, land and acquiring land and acquiring riches, that was all part of kind of becoming a bigger and better society. 
So as Japan in its colonial era was trying to conquer more land and move further up north the island, they kind of came into contact with the Ainu people. And visually, like when you just compare that population with the Japanese people who call themselves Wajin, they kind of saw a difference outright. The Ainu people were a little bit bigger. They had more facial hair in addition to just like the different clothing and the way they dressed and the different activities and cultural activities that they had. They said, well, these people are different from us. Like, who are they? So a natural curiosity, I think, started that research. But in addition, because in their eyes, the Ainu people were lesser or had savage practices, it was easy for them to kind of say, oh, well, you guys are lesser. We can take your land and take advantage of you. So once they had access to the land and all the resources and they had established themselves there, they kind of had to justify why they were able to do that and why it was okay. And so then while all of this, I mean, all around the globe, you know, people were conquering new lands and kind of going out and doing explorations and studying different peoples and cultures in the same line of sight. They wanted to do the same thing, the Japanese people. And so they kind of started recording the different practices of the Ainu people and putting down like, okay, they do these things that are different from us. They look different from us and kind of making comments and how they could better them and kind of incorporate them into Japanese Wajin society. And so it was not only the Japanese researchers and conquerors who kind of wrote these things down. They were actually a lot of Western explorers and researchers who also came to visit Japan when the borders had opened up to kind of see the Ainu people and make their own conclusions on the state of the Ainu people and how backwards they may be or how savage they may be and how, in comparison, the European and Japanese people were more advanced. So this is sort of in the late 19th century, early 20th century, this is all happening? Yeah. Okay. Did the Ainu have their own language? Yeah, so they had an oral language. I don't believe it was ever written down until afterwards in an attempt to kind of keep the language and teach people about it, but it was an orally transmitted language, yeah. Okay. And this was, at that time, part of this whole thrust in anthropology around biological differences, as you mentioned. So in order to further this, there was a lot of digging up of graves and sacred land. Is that right? Mm-hmm, correct. And I guess that continued for quite a while because now there's a big interest in remains in terms of DNA sequencing. So can you talk a little bit about what occurred and how that affected the Ainu people? So the whole interaction in general of outsiders coming onto 
Ainu land and displacing them. I mean, that was kind of like the first assault. And then in the name of research, kind of going in and without actually consulting the Ainu people, taking any remains and doing whatever testing they were doing and publishing research on that was the second assault. And this kind of continued without really the Ainu people really knowing or kind of understanding what was happening. They just knew that there was this bad relationship with them and the people who were doing this research and coming and kind of disturbing their peace, quote unquote. So it wasn't until later, I would say in like the 1800s, when there was an actual protest on the Hokkaido University campus grounds because a lot of the remains and a lot of the research was happening there where people kind of started to realize that, oh, we have a voice and, you know, we can use it to reclaim what was taken from us. It's hard to take away what has already been done. You know, the research was already put out there. The propaganda was already put out there. And the Ainu people, they were kind of lost. So they became integrated into Japanese society. And there's actually, in Japan, they kind of trace your lineage. It's been recorded for many, many generations of like this person, their mother and father and this and their parents are these people and they came from this tribe and their parents are from here. So it goes all the way back. So you could technically trace a current, you know, citizen's lineage all the way back to who their first ancestors were in modern day Japan. And so even today, as I've heard in more traditional families, if you kind of follow that lineage and, you know, if a guy and a girl want to get married and it turns out that one of them may have Ainu heritage that the family may be opposed to them getting married. Hmm. So it's very difficult and it has placed the Ainu people in a fear of if they identify as Ainu, they will be discriminated against. And Japan as a society itself, they don't really appreciate differences they have a certain way of doing things and you know everyone tries to blend in with each other nobody tries to make too much of a ruckus and being different is not celebrated you've written that the Ainu were recognized as an indigenous people just in 2008 so very recently wow yes so do you know if this specific issue of the digging up of remains, that those were being housed at Hokkaido University, and then were some of them returned, or are Ainu people trying to get these remains returned to them? Yeah, so based off of the last legislation, actually pretty recently, in 2012, I think this is the most recent lawsuit where there were two Ainu elders who were basically trying to meet with the Hokkaido University president and 
they wanted to request further returns of the remains that had not been returned in previous communications. That conflict between the university and kind of the idea of the university having rights over their research versus the Ainu people having rights over the actual remains that were used in that research, you know, was brought to light. And this was just recently in 2012. So it's ongoing. Right. Incredible. In your paper, you make some recommendations to try to ensure something like this doesn't happen again. And you make a fascinating suggestion of having almost a type of IRB that would consist of Ainu people would consist of representatives from the group that's being studied on the IRB. Mm-hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that on, and other efforts that might be made to try and, and lessen some of the mistrust that yeah. goes on for generations after something like this? Right. So the purpose of an IRB committee itself, right, is to challenge the researchers and the reason for why they are doing their research, if it's necessary and if it will be beneficial and kind of the harm-benefit ratio. So similarly for the Ainu people, you know, having research published on you about your people, the conclusions, I feel like for all research, you do the research, you get maybe some numbers, you get some kind of data, But the way you can interpret data, two different researchers can take the same data and interpret it differently. So really, when you're interpreting data, what you say from what you gather can largely affect and kind of influence a greater population. So if you're talking about and making comments about a very specific group, you know, what the impression of those conclusions may be could be very detrimental. So having the Ainu people on this board and kind of having an extra perspective and saying, well, is this research beneficial to us as a people? And whatever the research conclusions may be, are we prepared to deal with whatever may be said about us? And it can be a very hard line because for researchers, they try to have the best intentions, right? In the name of research, we want to give everyone more knowledge and kind of expand on what we don't know. But sometimes information that is disseminated can be more harmful than beneficial. So you also kind of have to think about on the other side, you don't want to censor information that may come out of research that kind of can give the opposite effect as well. But I think that looking back at the history of a people that have been so traumatized and taken advantage of, to not give them the opportunity to kind of reclaim and have a say in what is published about them, I think, is a little unfair. So kind of giving them a space to do that, I think, is one of the ways where we can continue to study any differences within that culture and within that people 
but also kind of give them an opportunity to use it as a way for them to kind of reconnect with their roots since, you know, many of them have been lost in the homogenous society that we see now in Japan. Along those lines, you talk in your paper about this divide, this historic divide between qualitative social science humanities research and quantitative scientific medical research. Right. And you make an argument that these two disciplines should really have more overlap. Do I have that right? Right. So like I said, I can use like a general example. If you, you know, have a study looking at different disease rates in a very strict population. Now, it may be that, you know, in that population, there may be a higher disease prevalence compared to the rest of the population. But is that because it's really because it's only in that certain population? Or is it because there are other confounding factors like social economic factors, like um, environmental factors? So I think that kind of taking, you know, the more medical, like I said, really the conclusions, what we're taking from them, they may not be the whole picture. So if a researcher is saying that the disease is highly prevalent in one population without considering what other factors may be contributing to this difference that they may be seeing, it requires a more holistic and also more humanities-based research and input because oftentimes it's not just because of one reason or for the reason that it's only in this population because mm-hmm. the population is like this. Well, why is the population like this, mm-hmm. you know? So interesting. Okay, let's turn to some of the volunteer work you've done and you're doing. So you were involved in a group called Stress Busters. What was that? Yes, so Stress Busters was this amazing organization that I found on the campus of the University of Arizona. And basically, they allow students to get training in back rubs, as we call, and they're just very handy techniques that anyone can learn in a day's training of how to kind of relax and relieve tension in the upper back and neck areas. So a group of us students, we would receive training in these kind of techniques and also training in how to approach a person and how to ask permission to touch the other person and how to adjust pressure when doing these techniques. Once we learned and practiced on each other, we would go to the main library on Monday nights and kind of offer these five minute back rubs to the students who were studying there. And it was really amazing to see students come up First, people would be shy, but, you know, of one or two students would come and, you know, they would get their five minute back rub and then they would just feel so rejuvenated and that they would come and bring their friends or we would see them every week. And it was just kind of like their highlight of the night because, you know, Mondays themselves are so stressful. And then, you know, you're a college student, you're studying, you have so many things going on and having that brief 
period of relaxation was something that the students really enjoyed. That sounds so fabulous. Physical and mental health benefits of that. Wow. Terrific. And now you're also involved in a group called Student National Medical Association. What is that and what is your role in it? Yes. So the Student National Medical Association is a group of medical students who support and advocate for people underrepresented minorities to enter medicine. So it starts from the very beginning. We have a lot of pipeline groups. We have MAPS chapters, which are SNMA organizations, but at the undergraduate level. So every SNMA chapter has an associated MAPS chapter, and we kind of help those students who may be pre-med or pre-health to find mentors and also give them information and kind of help guide them into getting into medicine and into healthcare. And it doesn't have to be necessarily like medical school. It can be any kind of health profession, but we allow these students to get exposure and meet people who look like them and come from their backgrounds to really get a hold in medicine and find opportunities that can benefit them and kind of reaching their goals. Wonderful. So, yeah, so my role on the regional level is I'm the webmaster. So I do a lot of the marketing for our events as a team, the regional team. We have many different players, but we try to come up with fundraiser events. We have events for the MAPS students. We have research events and information and information on how to get involved in SNMA itself and any conferences, any events that we try to put on. I guess I'm the person who markets it and I mostly manage our social media on Instagram and provide updates and share any of the events that we have to the rest of the region. And I uh, collaborate with our local chapters in each of the states and also our national body that supports all of us. So, you know, there's a lot of different tiers of this organization, but there's a lot of collaboration from all parts. So it's really amazing to be able to work with them and kind of display all the efforts that are going on and getting people interested in medicine and in health. Wonderful. And finally, Hiba, my last question, you graduate in, I think, 2024. Do you know what your future holds, what your next position will be? Well, <laughs> I would like to think that, you know, I'll graduate in 2024 as well. And I'm actually working towards possibly pursuing psychiatry. I have an interest in geriatrics as well, but I'm kind of kind of on the fence on whether which route I want to go on. So I think for now because I've actually done my clinical rotations in both psychiatry and geriatrics. They were both rotations I really enjoyed and also populations that 
I really enjoyed working with. So I think I'm kind of between those two and figuring out which one is the best for me at this time. Hiba Ilias, thank you so much for speaking to us about your work and best of luck in the future. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me.